Great to see everyone. Hiya. Um, uh, so just a bit of the story. Uh, yeah, I've got a wife, Jess, and two children. They were, I'm pointing here because that's where they were, but, but they're out now. And uh, Sebastian, who's five, and Florence, who's three. And nearly three years ago, in September 2019, or in August, we were sent to Beckles to New Life Christian Fellowship there. Um, they had invited me to come and lead the team. And so I've been doing that since then, working full-time for the church there. And uh, really glad to say we have just appointed elders in January, which is great. It was a really big step for us. And um, things are going on well there. We managed to move. We bought a home nearby in a little village called Ship Meadow, which you won't have heard of. It's just a few houses surrounded by fields, which is very different to when I was living in the Golden Triangle. Um, and yeah, so things are going really well there. Um, thanks. I know as, as a church, you've been praying for us regularly, and we really appreciate that. Your prayers are really being answered as we kind of march on there. And we're really uh, excited about all that God's doing. Um, we're going to be in Acts 17, if you've got a Bible and want to turn there. That's where we're going to be preaching from. We uh, recently, during the pandemic, went through uh, Acts Ourselves as a church, a series on the mission of God, what it means uh, to be on mission with God. Um, that it's him who's initiated it and what it means to be a part of the mission that he has begun. And uh, so I'm really excited to preach on this passage because it's, uh, it's a f- particular favorite. I wonder if you've ever been in one of those situations um, where, and conversations where the gulf, the gap between you and the person that you're talking to is really apparent. And uh, you kind of start to sense, oh, we've got quite differing perspectives here and this could get... You know, we could get into conflict, we could get into confrontation, it could be a tricky conversation. You don't know quite where to start to bridge the gap and, you, and kind of not end up in one of those conversations that ends up being an argument where you don't quite manage to see things one another's way. And it's much needed in society, I mean, isn't it? There's, you look, um, I'm going to give an example from social media in a minute, um, or a quote about it, that there's lots of division in society, isn't there? There's quite an amount of conflict and confrontation, competing truths and ideals and visions of life. Um, I don't know if you're on social media, I don't actually use it very much, but I read this uh, article by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, she's a a Nigerian author, and she describes the atmosphere of conversation about truth and reality in this way, she's talking specifically about Twitter. She said that maybe you can identify with kind of having seen this atmosphere. Um, She says, there are many social media savvy people who are choking on sanctimony and lacking in compassion who can fluidly pontificate on Twitter about kindness but are unable to actually show kindness. People whose social media lives are case studies in emotional aridity. People for whom friendship and its expectations of loyalty and compassion and support no longer matter people who claim to love literature, the messy stories of our humanity, but are uh, also monomaniacally uh, obsessed with whatever is the prevailing ideological orthodoxy. People who demand that you denounce your friends for flimsy reasons in order to remain a member of the chosen Puritan class. People who ask you to educate yourself while not having actually read any books themselves, while not being able to intelligently defend their own ideological positions because by educate, they actually mean parrot what I say, flatten all nuance, wish away complexity. You can tell she's been hurt, can't you? Yeah? 
People who do not recognize that what they call a sophisticated take is really a simplistic mix of abstraction and orthodoxy. Sophistication in this case being a showing off of how au fait they are with the current version of ideological orthodoxy. And she goes on, I've spoken to young people who tell me they're terrified to tweet anything, that they read and reread their tweets because they fear they'll be attacked by their own. The assumption of good faith is dead. What matters is not goodness, but the appearance of goodness. We're no longer human beings. We are now angels jostling to our angel one another. God help us. It's obscene. And whilst we might not kind of agree with literally everything that she says, she kind of describes the feeling that maybe, uh, or the atmosphere of um, conversation about truth and reality, I think fairly well, and the kind of feelings that, and emotions it can, can draw up. Maybe as a Christian, you're sat here thinking, well, I really kind of feel the divide in conversation between me and uh, friends and others who have conversations about Jesus and faith with, um, wondering how to bridge the gap. Maybe it is you're not a Christian here today and you're thinking um, that you can kind of see that divide and conflicting viewpoints. And I hope that what I kind of share today, um, uh, this consideration of Jesus and his teaching and example proves to be thought-provoking for you as you consider how to bridge the gap as well. And I'd be really interested in your, your thoughts afterwards on it. Should we read the passage together? Then we'll get into it. It says this, uh, Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he, his spirit was provoked or angered within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and then in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, popular philosophies at the time, also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which was a council made up of uh, Athens' past politicians who presided over and had authority over religious and spiritual matters in the city, um, saying... May we know what this new teaching is that you're representing and presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Luke, who writes um, Acts, has this slide note. Now all Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing new things. He's just having a bit of a slight at them. Uh, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said... And Luke summarizes for us Paul's probably likely longer speech. Men of, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I, f I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's a quote from Epimenides as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, which is from a poem um, called Phenomena by Aratus. Being then God's offspring, 
we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He's talking about Jesus. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from the midst, but some men joined him and believed, and among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So to set the scene, um, in verse 16, Paul is waiting for his friends. He takes a walk around Athens. He looks at Athenian life and uh, sees what it's like, and it says he's provoked. It means he's angered, his deep feelings of anger towards what he saw and experienced. Why was he angry when he walked around? Well, he saw a people in a society that centered their life on something else other than God, the one true living God. They worshipped idols that were made of silver and gold and made them the ultimate thing in life. And it angered him because God deserves ultimate place in our lives, being the one who made us and the world for us to enjoy. It angered him that God was not in his rightful place and not at the center of his life. Why else? It also angered him because he loved the Athenians. And it was hard for him to see people base their life on something that... Uh, was made by their own imagination, by their own hands, and having their lives dictated by this thing that they had made, and being determined by it, and trapped um, in the worship of something of their own imagination. And so there's three ways that Paul could have responded to this, and I think three ways that we can respond when we feel the gap between us and the person that we're talking to. One way is to close the gap artificially, which is kind of historically known as syncretism, You just kind of like merge your beliefs closer to the person that you're arguing with, just compromise on some things, close the gap to try and get a little bit closer, just to kind of, you know, be able to breathe and it not feel so awkward and not descend into an inevitable argument. Uh, A second way is to widen the gap with judgmentalism and anger towards the person and maybe an angry tirade against others for their differences and to live at arm's distance from people. And we might expect from Paul in this passage, if he's genuinely angry about what he's seen in Athens, to, to give this kind of angry tirade against Athenian culture. But he doesn't do that. He does the third way, which is he bridges the gap. What Paul does is he reasons in the synagogues, as he usually did, and then he converses respectfully with the philosophers in the marketplace despite the sneering of people towards him. They, um, in the passage, they call him a babbler. In the literal Greek, they call him a gutter sparrow. You know, like sparrows are kind of in the gutter picking up breadcrumbs, and they're calling him a second-rate philosopher who's just picking up the breadcrumbs that have fallen from the table where the true philosophers have their proper conversations. So they're really quite like having a go at him. And he's taken to this Areopagus council, and remarkably... Paul's speech honors the culture that he's experiencing in Athens, finds common ground to build bridges with them. He recognizes the truth in their beliefs. He quotes their own poets. He's respectful in his tone, despite the oppositional nature and despite the fact that he's angry about what he's seen. Why does Paul respond that way? First, he's responding out of a desire 
for God to be ultimate in people's lives. He doesn't want to compromise because he thinks that centering your life on God is the way, um, is, 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 the, is the right thing to do. God deserves it. We've been singing about this morning. He reigns and he's worthy of our, of our life, of centering our life on him. And he does it out of a love for people. does it out of a love for the community, for the Athenian society at large. And we, we sometimes will be rightly provoked by the things that we see in life, the things we hear about in the news, things that are talked about over the table. Um, but Because when things like career or looks and appearances personal happiness, peace in the family, sexual fulfillment, material possessions, comfort and ease, success and achievement, which are all good things, when they become the center of our lives as human beings, they do us great damage because they're not able to kind of fulfill the role of God. They kind of make false promises, and they're good, and we can enjoy them, but they're not to be the ultimate thing, and when we make them the ultimate thing, that can do us real harm. And so out of love for people, he um, kind of enters into the conversation. Why is he doing this? Well, Paul is following Jesus in this because Jesus is the great, he is the bridge and he's the greatest bridge builder. God in Jesus is the greatest bridge builder. This is how God has dealt with us, isn't it, as human beings? That when we've made something else ultimate in our lives, his loving response has not been to like close the gap artificially or an angry tirade at arm's distance, but he has entered into human existence as the man Jesus Christ, become a human being, lived life like one of us, established common ground with us by becoming like us and experiencing all the difficulties of human life in order to build a bridge between himself, God, and us, humanity. And so we aren't to be judgmental, disparaging, condescending, and condemning of others, because this isn't what Jesus is like himself, and is not what he has done to us. Jesus says himself plainly, doesn't he? I've, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. And then later in, in the Bible, Paul's writing a letter to a church in Coloss- um, Colossae, and he says this, that we should walk in wisdom towards others, making the best use of time, not wasting it in judging others, but instead our speech should be gracious and seasoned with salt. This way of talking helps us build common ground with the people that we're, we're talking with, where we feel the gap, build bridges like Paul to enable us to have conversations about life, about the things of God, about faith, about Jesus. Because honoring others' beliefs respectfully and listening to others um, makes it easier for others to hear our perspectives and the things that we want to share. Bill Hybels wrote this, there may be no quicker way to send someone to the hills than to play the piety card. If you want to permanently repulse a person from the things of God, try a little superiority on for size. It works every time. It's also just a bit inappropriate, isn't it? Because God is the only one who can judge justly. All of us kind of kind of see things in part, don't we? We never see things purely, and, and we never see the whole. Uh, but God does, and one day he'll judge all of us justly and fairly, and so we can leave it to him to do the judging 
and we just go on with loving others in conversation. So how can we uh, build bridges well? Well, we do what Paul does. We point people to truth. Point people to truth. If you ever played like those guess who rounds in a quiz, you know, where they've got pixelated pictures of famous people and you've got to kind of roughly work out who it is. And truth's a little bit like that, isn't it? It's a picture that's pixelated for all of us. We kind of look at it and we're trying to work out what's behind the picture. And if we exercise some sort of humility, we recognize that we're all truth seekers, aren't we? In that we're trying to understand the truth. We go through life trying to feel our way and find our way towards the whole truth and understanding reality better. We all have moments in life, don't we, where we think we've understood something, somebody brings a new perspective or kind of challenges us on it or asks a question, and we start to see things differently. And then we have our own understanding transformed in terms of how we kind of see reality and truth. Uh, One writer says this about Paul in this passage. He says, Paul's like a Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes figure. He's explaining to the puzzled police chiefs that their different theories about the crime all have some sense to them, but that there is a different overall framework under their noses all the time, but never observed, that will solve the whole thing. It's like the blurred, pixelated picture um, revealed. And Luke, who wrote Acts, has summarized this speech for us, and we can see how Paul acknowledges the truth in Athenian culture, he identifies common ground and points of contact and gives them new meaning. So if, let me give you some examples that are in the passage. He acknowledges that there is a tr- uh, the truth, that there's a God to be worshipped, but that he's not unknown, but can be known and wants to relate to us. He acknowledges the truth uh, in the Epicurean idea that God doesn't need anything from human beings, um, but that he's self-sufficient. But then he says that this doesn't mean he's entirely separate from us, but wants us to find him and relate to him. He acknowledges the stoic idea that God's the source of all life, but isn't subsumed in nature, but the creator of it. You might be thinking, isn't this a little bit arrogant to say that Paul, and perhaps us, see the picture unpixelated, or that we're a Sherlock Holmes figure, We'd all love to think of ourselves as smart as uh, Sherlock Holmes, um, believing that we're the genius and everyone else is puzzled police chiefs and we get to help them really find out the true picture. You might have um, heard the story of uh, three blind men uh, trying to find out the truth of an object that's in front of them and trying to work out what it is. And what's in front of them is an elephant. And one of them's uh, blindfolded at the side of the elephant and presses up against it and says, "It's, it's a wall. The truth is, this is a wall, and there's one at the front of the elephant that feels the trunk. It's like, no, 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 this is a rope. And then somebody's down here at one of the legs and is feeling, no, this is definitely a tree. I can get my hands around the trunk. And the point of the story is that that's, that's kind of us as humans, all from different perspectives, trying to grasp at the truth but not fully understanding it. The problem with that story, of course, is that the person who's telling the story knows what? That it is actually an elephant. It's a kind of claiming, really, to know the truth, that the object they're searching for is an elephant. Because everyone, whenever we make a truth claim, we, we're asserting something, and everyone does it all the time. Even if we kind of 
believe that truth is relative, and we say that there is no such thing as truth. We have made a truth statement, haven't we? The truth statement that there are no things that are true. There's no such thing as truth. There's a truth statement in itself. We all at certain points claim in conversation um, things that are absolutely true. We all say that we can kind of see the elephant as it were. Um, we'll all make that claim from time to time in conversations. But how does Paul then know that, the that it's an elephant, if you like? How does, how does he unpixelate the picture for people? Um, is he just being arrogant? The reason he can unveil the elephant is that the elephant's not mute when it comes to truth. The elephant's not mute. God is a God who can reveal himself, who speaks. And Jesus Christ calls himself the truth. I am the truth. No one comes to the Father except. Nobody comes to the truth about God except by me. Jesus is, is somebody who speaks the word of God to us. He is the word of God, and he reveals to us the full, pic, the full pixelated picture. He shows us that it's an elephant, if you like, and he's not just seeing part of it. Because Jesus claims something really unique that's not the case in any other religion or philosophy. He claims this, that everything in life is centered upon him, that we find the truth about everything in life, everything in life finds its meaning based in relationship to him. Why should we believe Jesus on this point? Why should we believe that he's the truth? Because he said that he would prove it by dying and rising again. Uh, which is a really silly claim to make, isn't it? If you're not going to pull it off. If you want people to follow you after you die, the one thing you should probably not say is, I'm going to come back to life. Because when you don't, they'll think, well, that was mildly, you know, it's kind of disappointing. Never mind, let's move on. Um, there's a really great book um, called Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. If you're interested in investigating the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then Frank Morrison, Who Moved the Stone, is well worth a read. Um, or if you like more of a novelly type read, um, then Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Case for Christ, um, which is all also well worth getting And if you're investigating that kind of thing. So Jesus believed the truth uh, centered upon him and finds its meaning in him. I'll give you an example from Mark 10. You might have heard the story of Jesus' disciples are like arguing with one another. They're feeling the gap. And the gap is, I'm the greatest. And the other one is saying, no, I'm the greatest. And that's basically the basis of the argument. No, I am. No, I am. And they're having this argument about who is going to be uh, the greatest. And Jesus, interestingly, doesn't go just stopping so arrogant and exercise some humility. He actually affirms their desire for greatness, um, which I think is very generous, um, and brings new meaning to what it, uh, greatness is. And Jesus says that greatness is defined by service. And he says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve. He tells all sorts of stories saying that the first, uh, sorry, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. He redefines greatness based on his own nature, that his greatness is defined by the fact he came to serve people, not to be served. So these disciples are thinking, well, who's going to serve me in the kingdom of heaven? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And Jesus goes, well, actually, I'm the greatest. And greatness looks like serving 
others in the way that I'm serving you, even with my life. So Jesus constantly redefined truth in reference to himself. And he does this repeatedly on the Sermon on the Mount as well, doesn't he? He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Truth is kind of centered upon him and finds its meaning in him. So, uh, I'll put that to you, and um, you can maybe t- tell me what you think of that afterwards, um, if you disagree, and we'll, we'll try and bridge the gap in conversation. Um, so, if we think about application, how do we apply, then, what Jesus did and what Paul did in this passage? How do we build effective bridges in conversation when we feel that gap, and we get that horrible sense of, this is leading to an argument and conflict, and I don't want it to happen, and I'm going to find something else to do. Instead, how can we stay in the conversation and build the bridge? First thing is, a look for common ground and understanding of truth. So when people are talking and you're asking them questions about what they believe, we understand that Christians don't have a monopoly on truth. Truth doesn't belong to Christians, as it were. It belongs to Jesus, and all truth is God's truth. Um, and so we can exercise some humility uh, understanding that, and start looking for truth in the things that the people are saying to us. Because as people talk and we ask them questions, they will say things that are true, that, that Jesus would say yes, that, that, do, that they, they have kind of found some part of the picture that is true. They are seeing it right. And we need to affirm those and say, I think I agree with you on that. Yeah, I think that is true and find common ground. And then the second thing is, point people to Jesus, the truth. Find actually, like Paul did, what are the things that are true, but also redefine that truth around Jesus and who he is. Shall I give you an example from pop culture? Is that all right? I'm, I'm going to anyway. It's what I've prepared, so I don't know why I'm asking. Well, that's, that's all we're going to do. Um, it's from Olivia Rodrigo, a great poet of the modern day, um, in her song, Driver's License, which was top of the charts at the time when I first preached on this. And uh, that whole song is about a relational breakup. In fact, all of the top five songs at that time were all about breakups in relationships. Interesting. Um, and her lyrics go like this. And I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to say it. It will sound awkward, but better probably than if I'd sung it. Um, She says, I know we weren't perfect, but I've never felt this way for no one. And I just can't imagine how you could be so okay now that I'm gone. Guess you didn't mean what you wrote in that song about me, because you said forever. Now I drive alone past your street. And all my friends are tired of hearing how much I miss you, but I kind of feel sorry for them because they'll never know you the way that I do. Yeah, that's in the lyrics. (laughs) Today I drove through the suburbs and pictured I was driving home to you. Red lights, stop signs, I can still see your face in the white cars, front yards. Can't drive past the places we used to go to because I still love you, babe. Ooh, ooh, ooh. (laughs) Ooh, ooh. Sidewalks we crossed. I can still hear your voice in the traffic. We're laughing all over the noise. God, I'm so blue. No, we're through, but I still <clears throat> love you, babe. There's a different word in there, but one I didn't want to share. Uh, so first, we can identify truth in the song, can't we? 
in these lyrics in the poet of our day, in that we can acknowledge with Olivia Rodrigo that breakups are painful, doesn't it? It really hurts. If you've been through a relationship breakup, it's painful, like really, really deep to the heart, just rocks you, doesn't it? It's sore, it's hard. It's real heartache, real pain, real confusion. And it's true, the relationships like that are meant forever. She says, because you said forever. That's true, that kind of relationship is meant forever. How can we point to Jesus and how is meaning found in him in this? Well, we understand that this is because God made us so that a man and woman would be committed to one another and sexually intimate and remain together for life. That this was God's plan for people in marriage, if they chose that, over remaining single. Because sex reunites a man and a woman and binds them purposefully together and intentionally for life. And breaking that bond is painful. It's painful. You have sex with somebody, you start a relationship with them, and then that breaks down. That's painful. Because people in marriage promise to themselves, don't they? For better, for worse, for richer, or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. How does this relate to Jesus, the truth? Well, marriage and sex is based on Jesus' relationship with us, the church. It's the whole idea of marriage and sex is based on Jesus' faithfulness towards us, and Jesus' relationship with us is unbreakable. It's his work. He saves us, rescues us, loves us. It's all his initiative. We don't get into a relationship with God because we're clever and we worked out the truth. I did a philosophy degree, do you know, at UEA? And I've uh, thought about things very deeply and come to a realization that Jesus is the only way. That isn't how it happened. I was an ignorant so-and-so, and God broke in and revealed himself to me. And I went, whoa. That was a bit unexpected. And he's kept on doing it graciously and mercifully, like we've been singing this morning, even though I'm a sinful so-and-so. I've lost myself. Just Yeah, so we can say, we can, we can say that relationships like that are hard because they're based, meant to be based on Jesus' relationship with his church. He's faithful towards his bride, towards the church. It's meant to be an unbreakable bond that he has with us. And the breakup of a sexually intimate relationship that's meant for marriage will cause real pain because God intended it for life, just as he intends us to enjoy relationship with God through Jesus for life. So when you hear your friends talking, when you read the poets of the day and you listen to song lyrics and so on, there's always truth in there because all truth is God's truth. And Jesus is not confined to these four walls when whoever speaks here does the talking, or whenever we're in our life groups or whatever it might be. God's truth is, it's out there, isn't it? It's inescapable, and people see it all the time. And in conversation, if we identify it, we build a bridge, we find common ground, and then we try and show how life finds its meaning in Jesus Christ. So how does Paul do that in the passage um, as I come towards the end? Um, G, uh, Paul identifies the whole truth about God in Jesus in this passage. He says that the Creator, uh, God is creator and sustainer of all things, that he's the Lord and ruler over it all, that he's a transcendent spirit who's self-sufficient, but he doesn't need us 
but he is active in the world, and he's a relational God who wants to know us, a Father who is close to us. He's a merciful God who cares about, injust, uh, cares about justice and wants us to repent, turn our lives around from making other things ultimate in our life to making him ultimate in our life. And that God has decided a day when history is going to reach its conclusion. At the end of the story, there's going to be a day when history will reach its conclusion. And Jesus Christ, who God raised from the dead, will judge the truth about us and our lives. This is the overarching patchwork, the kind of the pixelated picture that Paul unveils for the Athenians. And through this, Jesus urges us to turn from making our lives about us or about anything that we choose to making life about him so that he can make sense of life and truth and meaning and purpose. I thought, uh, as I was preparing this, I had a, a few things that some of us might respond to. I, I sense that there would be some of us who perhaps, when we get into these kind of, kind of conversations, our instinct is to want to back off. I don't know if you get that feeling when this kind of conversation comes along. That's my instinct. Oh, I can feel this going towards an argument or confrontation, or this person doesn't see things the way I do, and I go, this would be a lot easier if I just backed off a little bit and maybe found conversation with someone else where it would be a little bit easier. And I felt God wanted to remind us of these verses in this passage. Verse 26 says this, um, that God has called us to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. That God has, if you're a Christian here today, God has allotted the periods, time, and the boundaries of the place where you live for the, for the purpose of people feeling and finding their way towards Jesus, just in the same way that somebody helped you along the way. So don't back off from the conversation. God has put you in it from a purpose, and that should give you confidence as you kind of enter into it. Uh, this, the second um, one was that some of us have backed off because of others' responses. If you've ever like been gallant enough to, and courageous enough to enter into these conversations, and yet you've got bitten because either somebody mocked you, derided you, made you out to be stupid, or just flat out just like shouted at you, enraged, and got angry, and uh, so on. And I felt God wanted to say to you, persist. Don't back down because of others' responses. Paul was a genius, wasn't he? Guy writes these letters, you know, I mean, this is a story about his life, but he writes the letters. You read the stuff, the guy's a genius, isn't he? Sometimes you're like, whoa, how did that even ever pass through your mind? He's just incredible. And yet, here he is speaking to the Athenians, and what are their responses? Some of them mocked. Some of them wanted to hear more, and a few of them believed. If Paul got that response, that's probably what we should expect. Some are going to mock us. Some people will mock you for being a Christian because some of the things we believe are at odds with generally what's believed in our culture and society. Some people will want to hear more, might want to come along to Alpha or go out for a cuppa or a pint and talk further about it or just hang out and talk it through. 
and others might believe. And it's great to hear the stories of people being baptized recently. Yeah? That's why we stick in the conversation, because some people will believe in Jesus, find life in him and get baptized. Third one, and if the band want to come back up, because I'm, I'm, I'm nearly at the end here. I felt some of us are, are kind of angry, in it to win it argument kind of tactic. I was like this at uni. Paul was being very gracious, saying how nice it was to meet me uh, when we were at uni, because I was like a bull in a china shop. All this, you know, I was doing a philosophy degree and I loved it. I was like, yeah, oh yeah, you want to talk about that? Come on then. <laughs> I could win that argument. I do that all day with my degree. I'd love to do that with you and be a little bit like overly aggressive or perhaps assertive in conversation. And uh, I felt God just remind us of these verses I read earlier. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. I don't waste your time getting angry or being aggressive or trying to be assertive. It's pointless. It's a waste of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer each person. And last one. There are some of us here who are searching, who are seeking, who are trying to feel our way towards God. And God says to you, he is actually not far from you. He's actually not far from you. You're in a good place here and with the people you've come with. It may be puzzling at times, you may be trying to work it out, but you're amongst people here who've been in exactly the same position and still are, just trying to work out life, trying to work out God, Jesus, and all he means for our lives. But Jesus is present here. Keep searching with the people you've come with and be a help to one another in discovering the truth about Jesus, because in him is life in all its fullness. Should we worship in response? Yeah? Should we stand? I'll pray. And then we'll... Is that right?